Welcome to the Constructive Deconstruction Podcast, a three-part series where changemakers pitch radical new visions to shake up the future of humanitarian aid. Two years after the beginning of the Syrian crisis, I am from we Syria. are witnessing a staggering escalation of the conflict. Three years, more than 10,000 men, women and children have died trying to cross this... More than 150,000 refugees and migrants crossed into Europe. the acceleration of humanitarian crisis in a way that is unprecedented. And it started with a humanitarian system that every year spends more and more money, and yet every year the gap, the unmet needs, gets greater and greater. What we really want to focus on is what are the triggers and what are the power structures within humanitarian crises. It's not a question of whether the humanitarian community wants to work in this way. This is the way the world is going. And the question is, how does the humanitarian community respond to that? Hello, my name is Christina Bennett, and I'm the head of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. Welcome to the first episode of this series, where changemakers pitch their vision of the future of humanitarian aid. A team of experts will then examine the pitch with first-hand stories and evidence from the front lines. Then they'll offer feedback and work out some concepts and next steps. In this episode, Marc Dubois is going to pitch his vision, a new humanitarian basics. So we're going to get our experts to introduce themselves first so you get to know their voices. Hi, I'm Marc Dubois. I'm an independent humanitarian analyst and researcher. And I'm formulated the executive director of MSF UK. Hi, I'm uh, Abdurrahman Sharif. The, uh, I'm the director of the uh, Somalia NGO Consortium, uh, calling in from Nairobi. Hi, this is Nan Bizard, long and checkered career in the humanitarian world, currently head of innovation at the International Committee of the Red Cross based in Geneva. Thanks, everyone. Maybe just a bit now about the series. Um, this series was born out of a two-year research project to re-examine the humanitarian system. For this research, we use design thinking, a process normally used by companies like Starbucks and Ikea to look at things from the perspective of the end user. We applied this to the humanitarian system and interviewed people from around the world, those working on the front line of humanitarian assistance and those receiving it. This podcast explores the ideas that came out of that process. So first off, Mark, you have one minute to make your pitch. In one minute, here, here's where it started. It started with a humanitarian system that every year spends more and more money, and yet every year the gap, the unmet needs, gets greater and greater. And it just seemed to me that the system itself was becoming caught up in its own complexity. Then at the World Humanitarian Summit two years ago, the announcement of the entire humanitarian community was that the goal of humanitarian action was ending need. And I just thought this is absurd. Uh, you know, humanitarian action is much more of a triage business. It's not about ending need. The entire global humanitarian capacity couldn't end need in London, let alone around the globe. So what does this vision look like in practice? Well, for me, it starts with the idea that we need to rescope the idea of crisis. We need to rescope how it is that humanitarians think about crisis, meaning the kind of crisis to which they'll respond. And then we need to rescope or rethink the role of humanitarians, what it is they do in response to crisis. And I, I guess what's important to understand is that it's not just saying, okay, let's just do less, you know, have a, have a tighter or narrower definition. That's part of it. But it's really trying to unpack what's underneath, meaning unpack this expansive paternalism that leads the system to, to believe that it's appropriate even to try and end need and to try and go solve the world's problems, as opposed to responding to basic humanitarian needs like shelter, water, food, healthcare, 
in moments of, of crisis when local communities, local governments aren't able to meet those needs. So for me, uh, the example would be when there's a crisis, the humanitarian system would go and deliver food and water and nutrition and things like that. But what it wouldn't do is try and solve all the social ills of a society. And it certainly wouldn't be trying to be the primary responder and occupying the primary sort of pole position in a response to a protracted crisis that's been going on for 10, 20, 30 years. Because at that point, even though there are a lot of humanitarian needs on the surface, I think we need to understand that underneath those needs are, are structural problems that need to be dealt with. So, you know, the, the role of the humanitarian isn't to change the systems in society. It's to make sure, you know, it's to keep people alive in a moment of crisis. A second part of this vision is that we need to place people's needs at the center of the system, at the center of the response, I mean. And look, there's a lot of rhetoric around this. This has been said for two decades, but what's different here? Well, what's different is that we, we've... We have said that we want to put people's needs in the center, and yet our entire system, from the, the departments within each agency to the agencies themselves, are silos. Silos within silos of silos. And there are silos around areas of expertise. The water person, the food person, the healthcare person, the water department, the food department, the healthcare department, the water agency the healthcare agency, you know, and so on and so forth. And the problem with that is the, the old saying, you know, a hammer sees a world of nails. When the water agency goes out and looks at a, a community in crisis, it sees nails, meaning things to do with water. But the problem with, with humanitarian crisis is that it kind of eclipses your view of people's needs, but all of the needs of society are still there. People still have aspirations for their children to go off to the university. They need livelihoods law, democracy, justice, peace, all of those needs are still there in addition to their immediate needs. And it makes no sense to have humanitarians at the forefront of all that. Great. Thanks, Mark, for that. We're going to explore that a little bit more in a few minutes. But first off, I want to ask the experts, what's your first reaction to this? Abdurrahman, can we start with you? No, I think it's, it's, it's a timely uh, analysis because uh, we've been uh, thinking too much about uh, humanitarian uh, action, about how we become better first aid responses, and without analyzing and going into deep analysis uh, around the root causes of what's causing all of this. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, time of, to, to rethink is, is opportune, it's the right time now, and we need to continue analyzing, you know, the root causes of, of why we get into these humanitarian actions, why we get, get into, you know, becoming first emergency responders, if you can say it so. Uh, so the deconstruction is, is, is really, is really important. Great. Thank you, Abdurrahman. Nan, do you have anything to respond to that? I think it is important to look at the gap, and I think there's no question. I don't think you could ask anyone who wouldn't agree somewhere that the system has gotten a little bit too internally focused and creating endless processes and livelihoods for people in the system. But I would also say that why the gap is much bigger than that. So I, I just I don't think we can put it as a binary there's a gap, humanitarians keep trying to fix it, and that's the problem. That is part of the problem. But in the reality out there, I still go back to this idea of what's a humanitarian crisis. You send a plumber to fix a plumbing crisis. You send a dentist to fix a dental crisis. You don't send humanitarians to fix political, economic, and social upheaval. 
But then what would be different about your vision of humanitarian action? And you use the example of Hurricane Katrina to illustrate this. Can you describe why you use that example? Well, one reason I use that example is I used to live in New Orleans, and I have a, a deep fondness for, for New Orleans. The disaster Hurricane Katrina struck in 2005, and I think in some ways it represents the response from international and national authorities was a response that, for me, defines you know humanitarian basics. People came in and there were blankets and food and and, and clean water and shelter and and things like that. And the response, the response is remarkable for what it didn't do. And what it didn't do is try and fix New Orleans. And with much of New Orleans now underwater, authorities are focused on search and rescue before it's too late. An Army National Guard helicopter today rescued people from rooftops, fragile islands in the floodwaters. New Orleans is a mess. It has every kind of social ill and social problem that you can imagine. It has really extreme levels of violence and drug addiction. The health system and the education system are something that would, you know you would expect in some of the places where humanitarians work. Um, there's racial segregation. There's problems of discrimination and employment, and uh, it's just full of social problems. And what you don't see is a humanitarian sector full of a, a sort of paternalism. When they look at a problem, let's say, in, in a place like Africa, they, they fit it into a certain stereotype of, oh, we need to go there. We need to respond to this. We need an international intervention because the government is incompetent and the people don't have the skills and they're helpless. And you didn't do that in, you know, in New Orleans in 2005. And it was, you know, after, after the hurricane went away, the people went away. And all of those social problems are still there. But it's just, it's not the humanitarian business. We're not trying to end need in New Orleans. So, Mark, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you've just described as the response to Hurricane Katrina in the United States is what international humanitarian response should be. Well, I I think it's a model in which the response wasn't based on the humanitarianization of people's social problems where you go in and you have to try and cure all of the ills of society. So you've just given me a really good description of what international humanitarian action should not be. What yes. should it be? Well, I suppose it, it's, it's really the response to those immediate needs, but it's also remembering and not occupying the space and ensuring that there's an international architecture of other responders and a national architecture of other responders that are you know, taking on all of these other issues. But it also needs to, you know, it should be patient. It should recognize, it should recognize its hubris in trying to, to end need and, and have a much more limited vision of what it's able to do. It's able to help people in a moment of crisis and keep people alive. It's, it's this paternalism. And you've got to strip the paternalism out of humanitarian action. Thanks, Mark. Abdurrahman. Can you give me an example from the work that you do or anything that you've seen um, of a situation where the international humanitarian community has stripped itself of that paternalism? Uh, the model actually you see is, is, uh, uh, is in Kenya where things are a bit uh, different, where the Kenyan government has taken over you know, some of those responsibilities and said, uh, well, uh, listen guys, we lead the response and you guys support us. We've got this technical agency called NDMA, uh, the National Disaster Management Agency, uh, uh, that is responsible for uh, you know disaster response, and we want you to assist this agency in in, in identifying 
uh, needs, but also whenever it identifies the needs in helping them respond to those needs. And I think uh, um, that the situation is different uh, depending on the context you are in. And so in, uh, in Somalia, I think you have a very paternalistic uh, response, but that's dom dominated by the uh, international response because of the lack of uh, appropriate, you know, uh, authority structures. Uh, and, you know, things are, uh, are changing slowly. And what I see that there is a need for a change is, is to, you know, remove this uh, paternalistic nature of uh, uh, the response so that it can, uh, you know, help build local system and help empower uh, locals to respond to future uh, crisis. I think that's really interesting. And a recent example for me highlights just how difficult this is. The world was gathering to have a big conference around the response in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. And as the international community was moving to this big donor conference, essentially, the government stepped up and said, well, we don't agree with this. And well, what does that mean when the government of a, of a country says, well, we don't really, we don't agree with the way you're characterizing our country as a giant humanitarian debacle and you need to raise all the... And if you start thinking about that, well, you know, actually, there's a lot of us that would say, wait a second, that's a, that's a bad government. They're, they're not being, uh, you know, they're not delivering the goods to their people. There's a political reason behind that. And whether or not that's true or not, the whole point is... A government has the power, to, should have the power, and re-emphasized the primacy of the state and their responsibility. Right, but what would you say to humanitarians who would say that standing back in such a situation is unethical and flies in the face of humanitarian principles? Yeah, I, it's a very tough question. It's going to be one of the challenges of you know the, the new humanitarian basics. What does that mean? And it's it's very hard to sit back if you think that the Democratic Republic of Congo isn't acting in the interests of its citizens. At the same time, what does it mean when the international community pretends that it knows better? Abdurrahman, maybe to turn to you on what Mark has just said. Um, in Somalia, you've described a situation where the international humanitarian community is, is a primary responder. You represent an organization of NGOs. How would those NGOs categorize their role in the humanitarian response in Somalia? And does anything about what Mark has just said resonate with you or would it resonate with any of your members? Um, I think what Mark uh, uh, says resonates a lot. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Mark nails it. It's, it's, you know, reviewing the concept of what we call humanitarianism, humanitarian action or humanitarianism. Uh, and I think uh, uh, we tend to forget what leads us to become humanitarians in the first place is, you know, this the ethics around it, uh, the idea of helping people in need, and the idea that those people in need could be us or could be our brothers and sisters. And that's the whole concept of humanitarianism. That's why many organizations started. Yeah, I, I, I really, I, I want to emphasize that point. Humanitarian action is an ethical exercise. It's an ethical enterprise. And to measure humanitarian action simply on the basis of effectiveness and efficiency just doesn't capture that, does it? And yet all of our accountability is essentially around were we effective? And we don't ask that question of ourselves of were we ethical? And I think, I, I think it's a question that has to be right at the center of it. Thank you. Let's let's pick up this point of effectiveness. We've in this podcast so far explored some examples um, that have helped us understand what a new humanitarian basics would look like. We've proposed a future role for the humanitarian sector. But on this question of effectiveness, what does future humanitarian effectiveness look like? 
The bigger question is, is it situated within an international response and a national response that is dealing with all of those other needs, right? And for me, I call that in this paper, the whole of problem approach or the whole of society approach. People have urgent needs and you need to have specialists, humanitarian and relief agencies there to deal with those urgent needs. But those urgent needs, they eclipse, but they do not eliminate or, or, or even reduce in any way all the other social needs that people have. And so for me, you know, one of the things I would see in a whole of problem response is that you don't have sector after sector. Look, the, the humanitarian system starts as a sector, right? And then within it, you've got the water and sanitation people, the health people, the protection people, the food people. So all of these silos within, and we spend a lot of time just trying to break out of those specialization silos into you know, a, a sector, but the sector is a silo. What about the justice and democracy people? Uh, the whole problem approach, I think it requires us, you know, an international and national response to people's needs rather than a humanitarian response to urgent crisis. So that you need to have a response that brings around the same table the law and justice people, the peace people, the development people, the livelihoods people, the humanitarians, and, and government. That's what government does in some ways, right? And that's what communities do. And that's, that's, for me, what I call in the paper the whole of problem approach. Thanks for that. Nan, how would you respond? Sure. I, I think what, what Mark has just described is absolutely true. Um, the word silos and that designation has been used for decades inside individual organizations across certainly the UN system and often the NGO system and probably the Red Cross system. It's also um, true that not only within the humanitarian system are there multiple silos, but certainly siloed from other areas, law and justice, peace, development, as Mark said. Whole of problem crisis response is interesting. Um, I think it's absolutely critical um, and I hope it can get there. And I think you're seeing more and more of it. But I also think that in that you also see people then ideologically not feeling comfortable with different elements of it. So it's a correct diagnostic. I don't think it's going to be simple to fix. I think human beings tend to work in silos, even governments and communities. I don't think they're a silver bullet. So I think it's great. I think it's, of course, what we want to work towards. And I think that it continues to be a challenge to bring differences and different ways of looking at things and different orientations and different priorities around a table and find ways to facilitate our way through it. So now we've explored what the vision for the future of humanitarian action might look like and some of the qualities that we'd want for a humanitarian crisis response. But what about next steps? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Mark, what would be some concrete next steps toward your vision of a new humanitarian basics? Okay, I'll give you a concrete next step and a not-so-concrete next step. For the not-so-concrete next step, I'm, I'm going to start with the principles, and I'm going to start with the principle of humanity. The principle of humanity defines the purpose of humanitarian action. What the vision that I've set out argues is that we have lost that principle of humanity. You cannot honor the principle of humanity that people we are trying to help are human beings if you characterize these people through your operations, through your, your narratives, through your advertising, through your fundraising, as helpless victims in need of saving, that, that, that for me strips out the idea of humanity and reduces people to victims. Second, okay, something more concrete. 
I think at a, at a certain point, if you want to start rethinking the sector, well, you have to you have to bring in design theory. And design theory basically says there's no map, there's no blueprint. You design something, you try it, you look and see if it works, and you you, you take the good out of that, and then you try again, and you try again, and you try again. And what I would start with is I'd pick a couple of contexts. Look. Our whole humanitarian architecture is designed around our, our expertise and our sectors. And I would just, let's put people and their needs and that context in the forefront. So I would just take, pick a context and stick in the same room a bunch of, you know, the peace builders, the law and development people, the government people, the humanitarian people, the development people. And they work, and they work together. They don't work in under a coherent plan. They're still part of their organizations, but they are together sort of just talking about the issues so that they all know what's going on. And I would start restructuring humanitarian action around that, about the ability of different sectors to, to you know, create an architecture that, that is able to respond to the fullness of people's needs. Nan, over to you. I actually think what Mark described is happening more and more. I think it's a natural consequence. I, in fact, don't think that things are, of course, siloed. Things are, of course, fragmented. Individuals affected by conflict and crisis are not at the center. There's tons of rhetoric by everyone. But I, I also think at the same time, things are changing and changing rapidly and radically. For one thing, technology, which, of course, we all you know, both appreciate and, and have concerns about it. I mean, you look at the most recent issues with Cambridge Analytics and et cetera, and this is going to just continue. But this also, this technology is also um, creating enormous opportunities for people to have um, their agency expressed. And I think uh, here that is only going to get stronger and stronger, and that can only be welcomed. Uh, so I, if I could say anything, I would say that I, I hope that we continue with the movement of anyone affected by crisis to have the opportunity to have their agency and speak their mind and take control, particularly people who are often um, stripped of that even more, women, children, elderly, disabled, those vulnerabilities. Um, but that agency continues to be of, of great concern, I think, to, to all of us. Abdurrahman. Um, one thing I would also try to challenge is this concept that, you know, humanitarian action is Western-based, it comes from the West, etc., uh, and work towards building, you know, a universal model that is shared both by countries, you know, uh, from the West and East, uh, from the North and South, uh, that is not something that is uh, led by someone, but led by a collective understanding that uh, the, the, the principle of humanity and human dignity is what drives us. Uh, 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 to do this work. Okay, we've now heard about Mark's vision for the future of humanitarian action. We've explored what it could look like, as well as determined some of the qualities it would be needed to make it work. We've also heard Mark's next steps. So what do we think of this vision? What's your feedback? Do you have any criticisms? What do you think is good about this vision of a new humanitarian basics? Nan, over to you. Well, if I understand what Mark is saying, he's one saying that uh, we use the, the language of humanitarian crisis has become very generalized across uh, many, many different domains, um, far beyond this uh, the, the kind of classic or traditional place that it was, quote, born from. Um, sure, I think, as I said earlier, that is true. I don't think that's going to change. So I, I 
really don't think there's a lot of effort to be made here to to kind of um, kind of rescope the language. I, I just don't think that's very helpful. I think he's also talked a bit about um, that we shouldn't continue to make a crisis out of a crisis. Um, that things go on for years and they're no longer a crisis; they're a diff- different problem. Again, I don't think that's so new. Yes, he may think that the word protracted crisis is a uh, oxymoron or, or not very useful. I think what it says to many people is it's crises that go on for too long and that people remain with an absolute deficit of what they need to thrive as human beings. I don't. I, I, everyone agrees with that. That is absolutely right. And I think this is where you see these pretty significant changes across a humanitarian landscape, the World Bank being probably the, the largest and most explicit. Whatever anyone feels or thinks about the World Bank, you cannot say that they're not in their conflict and fragility orientation saying this is where we need to go with our money. I think he's also saying that we need a whole-of-problem approach that people cannot stay in their silos. And again, absolutely. I agree with that, and I think most people would. And I also think that you hear more and more, and you see more and more, that individual agencies are saying, we can't do it alone. Governments are often saying, we can't do it alone. Where the deficit is, is in trust. I think it's very hard to find trust, not just north-south and east-west, but between agencies, between governments, and that's where um, I think we, we have to grow as human beings to be able to really be able to, to have a, a way in which we truly can be allies around the world to each other and to people affected by all sorts of crises. Abdurrahman, how would you respond? I think the, the, the vision is what's needed. Mark nails it. He looks like, uh, you know, at the details and at the concept, uh, particularly of humanity. He's looking at the ethical questions around it. Uh, and I think those are the things we need to strengthen, as, as, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, we need to uh, review them or we need to think about, you know, uh, what led us to come into uh, uh, this world and, and, and do humanitarian action uh, in, in the first place. Okay, we've now heard about Mark's vision for the future of humanitarian action. It's five years into the future. What do you see for the humanitarian system? What does it look like? Abdurrahman, I'm going to start with you first. The humanitarian uh, system is uh, completely overhauled. Uh, it is uh, uh, led by uh, what we call uh, local actors. Uh, we have contexts where the government has you know, an upper hand uh, and they're supported by humanitarian actors to provide response to crisis. Uh, but also there's mutual solidarity. So there's an earthquake uh, in, in Italy and Algeria is providing fire rescuers, first aid personnel, uh, search and rescue dogs to Italy and support them in the response to the earthquake. And that's the kind of solidarity you know, that I expect that it's uh, not from rich to rich, not from rich to poor, but uh, uh, solidarity from uh, uh, one another uh, to respond to these humanitarian crises. Thanks, Abdurrahman. Nan, final thoughts from you. Well, I think in five years' time, you could look at it in a lot of, from a lot of different perspectives. I think we certainly are just beginning to see the effects of, of climate change and what that's going to do to migration, to agriculture, to water sources, to conflict from water sources. So I think in some ways we may see 
probably will see, maybe not in five years, but a trend towards growing different kinds of resource conflicts and resource population movements. We are certainly seeing a push towards uh, a UN reform, which I think will be interesting, which is looking at, at some of the things that Mark is proposing, less silos, more joined up, more holistic engagement. I think that we will see um, a growing number, which is, I think, mostly a very good thing, of, of local and national and regional agencies. And I think we will see a shakeout probably across some of the humanitarian sector of the, of the traditional actors. But net-net, in five years, probably the biggest change we're going to see is, as I said earlier, technology enabling people to really express who they are, what they need, and where they're going, not what people want to bring them. And I think that's all to the good. Now turning to Mark, you have the last word. Well, I guess what I'd like to see in five years is, is that we're starting to unpack some of these fundamental truths, some of these fundamental structures uh, that are that are holding the current system together, meaning the paternalism, that, that neo-colonial idea uh, of going out and saving the world because they're all incompetent and we know how to do it. And that what what's replaced that is uh, you know, South to North humanitarianism, South to South humanitarianism, or just a humanitarianism that is that responds to crisis, responds to people's immediate needs, and then allows societies the space to you know work on their own problems and deal with the really underlying and structural and systemic issues that that plague all of our societies not just ones in the global south a second thing i'd really like to see is that some of the architecture literally that the the departments and units and the way in which those silos uh, of expertise and professionalism are the are the fundamental building blocks of the system that that started to be uh, eroded and that in its place you see a lot more networked multidisciplinary teams working around a particular context and those aren't just humanitarian teams but those are you know whole of problem responses that that really try and address the full range of people's needs on the ground and because they've been stripped away from these silos of expertise that it is the context that drives the response not the silo that drives the response but i'll tell you I, i'm a bit of a pessimist Power is not so easily swept aside. Power is not so easily disrupted. I think there will be changes, but I also think we can underestimate the degree to which the system will you know, adapt and find a way to, to stay in place. So I hope we're able to make progress, but what it means is that we're going to need to dig deep. It means we're going to have to get to some of these underlying issues rather than just sort of changing the, uh, the organograms and having a new you know, sort of consultation process and assessment process and all of those things. We're going to need to have to unpack humanitarianism and bring it back to, to a, a much more core idea of human solidarity with people in crisis, not uh, saviorist uh, uh, heroism uh, to, uh, you know, to end need. So that was our pitch for a new humanitarian basics. Thanks to all of you for discussing this with us today and to Mark for pitching his vision to us. It started with a humanitarian system that every year spends more and more money, and yet every year the gap, the unmet needs, gets greater and greater. 
I think we're in a period of what I could say an identity crisis. We don't know whether we're humanitarians, we're development, we're something more. What we really want to focus on is what are the triggers and what are the power structures within humanitarian crises. So thanks for listening to this three-part series. This podcast series is just a snapshot of years of research on this topic. For more of our research on the humanitarian aid system, visit odi.org slash constructive deconstruction. Thanks so much.